you know, just like physical illness, mental illness can be overcome. We just got to inspire people to believe that. The mental health community and the firearms industry spent way too much time running parallel to each other without communicating. It's time we change the narrative and destroy the stigma that we both face. Walk the Talk America presents Guns and Mental Health, a podcast for firearms owners, clinicians, and the curious public. Hello, how are you, sir? Good, how are you? I'm awesome. You're joining us from uh, Southern Colorado, is that right? You in the South? No, North Carolina. Oh, you're in North Carolina. Jeez, I already screwed that up. Hey. <laughs> the other day, we were talking about him having a guest on, and I was kind of like, where's he getting the Colorado from? But I, I, Well, I think because Emmy's in Colorado and you do a lot of work with Emmy Bats, right? You cross paths with her? <laughs> Yeah, cross paths with her, yeah. sort of where all uh, our yeah. Venn diagrams overlap. Yeah, the yeah, Venn diagrams overlap. Yeah, um, I geographically when you when you do these these podcasts, you know, people are just in their homes and we're on Zoom, and and I get it in my head that because of some association or some introduction from one person to the next, I just lump it with a couple people in the same uh, location. So you're in North Carolina. Welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you. Mike and I are uh, really glad to have you because you you cross a lot of um, borders and check a lot of boxes and uh, I guess we call that intersectional now. Uh, we used yeah. to just call it, you know, Renaissance man or woman or comprehensive or diverse, but mm-hmm. now it's now it's intersectional. So uh, I'm not going to introduce you though. You should introduce yourself. I don't even know where where the hell you're from, so I guess <laughs> I shouldn't be doing the introduction, but. Andrew, um, please tell the audience who you are and uh, why why you're here with us. Sure, Andrew Langlois, and I am. Well, I do a number of things. I'm a former police officer, business guy within the firearms industry forever. It seems, uh, doing a master's degree in public health, and we talked about intersections of things before. I'm intersecting police violence, firearms, and public health all at once and um as part of the end of my studies here for capstone thesis kind of thing so <clears throat> obviously we're we're all chit-chatting with one another because well we all have the same friends and you know we know everybody in the industry yeah it's it's super cool and i am really i mean there's not a time a, a podcast or a meeting or a conversation or a committee or commission that goes by where i'm not super humbled by the people i'm around and how smart they all are and what they have to contribute um i think i, th- I there's a lot of places i want to go with this conversation and i know you you want to talk about some stuff but um maybe we should start with you you left law enforcement and decided to go get this master's in public health degree, uh, MPH, mm-hmm. as you might see it as yeah. uh, somebody's you know name has letters after it, and we call those post-nominal letters. MPH means master's in public health. What spurred the interest? Well, I needed to do something when I grew up. Fair enough. And, <laughs> what do you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> <laughs> so what could I do? How could I contribute to you know, sort of altruistically using the knowledge and experience that I have. So, you know, already have my bachelor's degree, you know, was on patrol forever and obviously in the industry doing all sorts of cool stuff with a few businesses. And then where could I take all of that, bundle it all together and not, not reshape me or repackage me, but apply it towards things that are important to me, but, but also important to everybody else. So, so here's where I'm at, is it, you know, talking about firearms and, you know, sort of hate using the term means reduction, but that's the, that's the trendy term here, you know, as far as suicide yeah, stats and, and that, how to prevent that. It's probably, it's probably instructive to the listening audience to say, when we use these terms, this, uh, this vernacular, if you will, uh, means reduction, what we mean is, is is there's a means by which something is accomplished. And in our realm, we're talking about suicide. So how does one accomplish suicide? What means do you use? And uh, it's always interesting to me because they talk about lethal means reduction. I'm like, if you're dying, it's all lethal. Um, but they really mean things that pose a 
higher risk of death than um, something else. And one of those lethal means is firearms. So it at, naturally, the, the nexus all comes together there. You know, firearms, means reduction, suicide prevention and intervention. Um, but you have this public health perspective. And I think it it would probably help to explain what that means, because especially these days with coronavirus and COVID-19, and we hear a lot of public health experts and um, taking a public health approach to things and that kind of uh, discussion. What does that mean? And what, what should the listening audience know about the public health perspective on something? So, so public health is dealing with the health of communities or populations. So it could be, you know, by race, by ethnicity, location, you know, within a specific timeline, whatever somebody's been exposed to, you know, um, and and it's not just health, whether you have a pulse or feeling great, you know, is it is it the absence of disease? Uh, is it good social health? You know, are your communities healthy? Um Sometimes it's generalizable down to the person, but normally we are talking about groups of people. So in our case, talking about those who who might be suicidal, and then we can bring it up to to a larger population level, you know, the gun owning community, and then bring it up even larger to those who don't own guns, who are viewing guns as either something bad because it could be lethal means, and then those maybe in our community who view it as a life-saving tool. So, so when I look at things, I have to identify all, all the little players there, you know, who's doing what, how they're doing it. Yeah. I, I think as I uncover more and more about the public health realm, it seems like a really good idea to take a, a broad based view of things rather than just, um, speculating. Right. And I think what public health does is it gathers a lot of research and data from which we can draw various conclusions and then maybe, uh, it informs policy making so that when we see or hear about, you know, Congress or the, the state legislature or whatever, um, making a policy that's going to address a, a health issue, they're not just doing it because it seems like a good idea. Typically, there's these people like yourself who, until pandemic hit, were often operating behind the scenes, looking at volumes of data, compiling reports, and then giving suggestions or recommendations or at least um, influences to the to the voting people on whether or not they require seatbelts, you know, for driving, or if they they want an anti-smoking campaign or whatever these things are that are quote unquote public health issues. Mm-hmm. So when we're talking about firearms and suicide. What are you researching? What are you studying that might be of use to both those quote unquote sides that Mike and I are trying to pull together so that they're not standing opposite each other, you know, pointing fingers, you know, the gun people and the, and the health people. What are, what are you right. finding? Well, everybody's stats are correct because that's all I do is research statistics. So when we said, what is it? 60% of suicides done with a firearm right and then 85 yeah. percent of the 85 percent of those are are deadly completed mm-hmm. uh that that seems to be correct across the board there's no indications that it's wrong um the problem that i'm having and it's it's actually been vexing to me because i'm doing i i have to have up to the minute data for what i'm doing and and i'm running into a huge problem not getting current data from any of our uh, law enforcement reporting systems like the FBI, NIBRS, um, CDC even on what's happening right now. Like, and for me right now is 2020. So that's, that's what I'm dealing with as far as a date range. So everything's back in 2017, 2018. Um, It, it's gotten to be so problematic that I've been calling everybody in Washington trying to see, just trying to get my legislature involved. Like, why can't I figure out what violent crime, suicide, um, firearms related injury overall, and then specific stuff. Why can't I get it if it's being stored on a computer, you know, just a few hundred miles north of me. Uh, I can get up to the minute, up to the minute COVID infections. Right. And, like literally what happened at noontime today, we can find that out, mm-hmm. but I can't find out what the suicide rate is for the U S for 2020. 
well, that... provisional. It's okay, but it's not reliable. Even the even the COVID stuff though wasn't that because I'm I'm not sure I'm not up on this I'm speculating but wasn't that uh, really hard to get to because um, until we realized the need for access and and integrated data sharing systems um, weren't hospitals somewhat isolated and and siloed and so they weren't necessarily reporting to the same avenues and that kind of thing and is is that also what's going on in in what you're tracking down. Is it simply um, a matter of like interconnectivity and IT? Well, there might have been interconnectivity and IT, and then now we have dashboards for COVID. So all the health departments are are collecting data. So we have county ones and then state ones here, just just dealing with North Carolina, but it's but it's similar through all the states, who then report up in a in in relatively real time basis to the CDC. FDA, everybody, you know, all the all the people that need this data right now um, with, I think, 34 states buy into what's called the NIBRS program. And that's just an acronym, NIBRS, National Incident Based Reporting System. Uh, so when a police officer or a police officer supervisor presses the enter key into the computer, it's it's uploaded somewhere. Uh, it might be local, county or state but it's being stored in the computer. So you can actually get in theory exactly what just happened. So like Mm. say in my former role, I went to a suicide. So it's in as a suicide. And then what were the means? What was the situation? So as soon as that reports in, it's data that can be tracked, but nobody wants to put the data out to the public or even to researchers like myself. And that's, that's where I'm running into problems and that's where everybody's running into problems because we have to make recommendations for very unfresh data. So anything I write on suicide and means reduction is coming from 2017, 2018, or something that I've researched locally, like from a health department or interviewed like a major Metro police department or, or in some cases I have to do a freedom of information act, like say for Chicago or DC, I have to do a FOIA request for any data because they just don't want to give it. I I don't understand that. And part of me just says, well, it's politics, you know, Occam's razor being what it is. And if you don't know what Occam's razor is, it's uh, the simplest explanation is the best one. And, um, Mm -hmm. and that's a, that's a, that's a concept that goes back uh, a long way, but I had heard over, the, the many years that the reason that uh, we didn't have these data available to us is because, um, you know, the right side of the political spectrum didn't want it shown because it may implicate guns as being a problem. And the left didn't want it shown because it may not implicate guns as being the problem. <laughs> and so they both just, there was a stalemate. I mean, is it, is it really that simple? Are we that obtuse or, or is there something I'm missing? It's, this is easy data to report on, even if it's just it seems like truly, it. it's, it's somebody putting up a dashboard just like we have for everything else. And, and then saying, you know, it's going to be official next year or something like that after it's been audited. If, you know, if we can audit, if we can audit COVID results real time, I think we could probably do monthly or weekly data for, for crime, suicide, you know, everything that's yeah. being reported within a a common system now some states like north carolina a town might have one system a county might have another and then the state might have another all that gets put together end of year or quarterly or something like that and then it'll be sent off inputted the way it has to be put in and so so it truly will be a yearly audited data but there's yeah 34 37 states that are part of the nibers and that's all all that's really needed for it's so widespread with a few good metro centers that you really could get good data that could be could be used for really good recommendations and policy decision. 
So you don't need all 50, and I don't want to bore everybody with the data. Um, so I know I could, I could almost sense people's eyes rolling back in their heads <laughs> as, as we're talking about this dry, boring stuff. But it, but it really matters because if you don't have it, um, you can't make informed decisions. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Mike, you look like you're about to jump in there. I, I actually have a question for you, Andrew, because I follow on Twitter. I follow all different types of organizations, um, some pro-gun, some anti-gun. I always like to keep my eye on who's saying what uh, just so I know where someone stands or if I see something that is just outrageous or maybe something that just, you know, it's not accurate, period. Um, Have you ever heard of Gun Violence Archive? No. Okay. Um, You might want to check their website out. Now, I'm not Mm -hmm. saying that their information is correct or not, but they – I mean, I'm looking at their numbers right now, and uh, for 2020, they they break down a list. Of, they have 612 mass shootings. Now, they probably define mass shootings as maybe three or more people involved mm-hmm. or something to that effect, right? Um, you, you have 39,325 gun injuries, 19,223 gun deaths, um, and then they break out suicide separately. Um, but like, I guess my question is, and you're not going to be able to answer this because you've never even researched them, but I wonder where these people get the numbers to compile for these lists for what they're putting out. Yeah. I don't know how they're getting it. You know, I need to have a citable resource for my work. There's no possible way that I can say that, you know, some webpage told me this, I have to be able to go and say, you know, it's an agency or, you know, even a private firm that documents things. Um, they have to tell me where they got it from. You know, are they, are they actually out getting primary data from all the hospitals or all the Metro hospitals or something like that? Would one, um, of, would one of those private entities be uh, blue help because that's all voluntarily disclosed to them. Cause that's an, that's sort of an imprecise, um, you know, officer suicide database, but it, it, it's the only thing we have, near as I can tell. Yeah, it <clears throat> that could be reliable, somewhat biased. You know, do we know that? Do we know that everybody's reporting it? But mm-hmm. but then it might be better than how it's being reported now. You know, because is everybody part of? We're talking about the NIBR system, or is there another one tracking this within? Within like the FBI crime reports, uniform crime right. reports. Mike, what was that number that they said on mass shootings in 2020? They said that we had 612 mass shootings. That can't possibly be accurate because it just, it, I mean, I, I just looked at the Mother Jones database and they've been tracking it since 1982 and I don't think there's ever been more than like 14 in a year. So I don't know how they come up with 612. Because they could define a mass shooting as three people being present, right? You could you can oh, play with numbers, yeah. And we've seen it before. Like I'm looking at, I'm just you know, since we brought it up, I've just been kind of scrolling through their Twitter yeah. feed. Um, and it, it's funny they one of their things that they have, and they just posted eight minutes ago, is of the pat as of the past weekend, there have been a hundred plus American teenagers killed or injured in gunfire in the new year. You know, so clearly they're framing things up to have kind of an anti-gun stance. Um, and I'm just, I, I don't know where they get that in there. I was kind of hoping that, you know, may, maybe Andrew knew just because of, of the amount of research that you've done and you probably vetted a few places and yeah. brought things out. And, you well, know. well, I find it interesting that, you know, we're, we're what, 12 days into the new year and a hundred people have died supposedly because of or gunshots. Or injured. Or injured. And none of it's made the news. I mean, there's been <laughs> there's been a lot of exciting news lately, yeah. but you know, that you know, the old the old <laughs> adage, if it bleeds, it leads. Yeah, you know, what a hundred people this is between the ages of twelve and seventeen. Yeah, that's pretty big. Yeah, man. I mean, it's uh it's interesting. Now either so let's let's give them the benefit of the doubt, right? Let's pretend yeah that that is actual and factual. Mm-hmm. Why isn't that being reported? Do you think that the media would love to jump all over that number? <laughs> yeah. That, I mean, it's massive. And, you know, for, for actually the left and the right, we really need to look at that because, you know, is it, is it self-defense? Is it crime? Is it, is it a mental health issue? It, 
negligent discharge. I mean, you took yeah. 11 days into the year, there's 120. So that's 10 a day. Like you'd end up with 36,000 people. Yeah. Right. Shot, shot, killed or injured. Gun violence archive for everybody that's listening out there. If they want to do their own research as well. Uh, I, like I said, I follow them on Twitter. I do ignore a lot of the, the negativity that comes out in the comments of those things. I just like to see what they're saying. Um, I, I follow, you know, both ends of the spectrum when it comes to statistics and firearm stuff. I take most of my stuff from the CDC and I find myself in the same situation. Jake and I just had this conversation. Was it last? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that Andrew that you're in, I'm like, I sent him a Venn diagram. So it's kind of funny. You brought that up as well. And we were talking about the Venn diagram and Jake said, Hey, where do you, where'd you get this? Because it looks like there's nothing to it. I said, well, cause I use it in a speech, right? I use it when I'm talking at the Venn diagram behind me. Uh, but the Venn diagram was from 2017, right? Cause that's when you had the most accurate information and everything like that. Well, Jake found out that, you know, by the time I had made it, the 18 numbers weren't out yet, but they, they must have come out because Jake came up with some new numbers. Yep. Wasn't much different though, correct? Yeah, no. In fact, I can I've got it up right here. I can go through it real quick um, because people might be interested. So I'm going to use this in a presentation here shortly. But so 2018 CDC, uh, you can look this up yourself. I did. Took me all of 10 minutes. Um, all firearm deaths in 2018: 39,740. So almost 40,000 firearm homicides. 13,958, so almost 14,000 of those 40,000 uh, for a, a percentage of 35% of all firearm deaths were homicides. Now, suicides, all suicides in 2018, all means uh, 48,344. Of those, firearms accounted for 24,432, so half, 50.5%, 50.5% of suicides were done by firearm. And that same number is 61 0.4% of firearm deaths. So Andrew already mentioned that um, about 60% of firearm deaths are suicide. Um, now negligent slash undetermined was 1,350. So that's 3%, 3, 3 and 3 of all firearm deaths were negligent or undetermined. And then mass shootings in 2018, 80. 80 people out of the um, 39,740 who died by firearm were from mass shootings. That's two tenths of a percent. Um, so, uh, color color me uh, incredulous when I hear that six hundred and something happened in um, twenty twenty. So, uh, we always want to when when you hear data, and this is this is an invitation to everybody listening. When you hear data, when you hear statistics, first first first, ask where it came from, uh, and and see if see if it's legitimate, right? And then ask what the data are telling you, not what somebody's trying to present the data to tell you and ask how the definitions are. So to Mike's point, let's pretend that somebody came up with a 600 and something mass shootings in 2020. Well, what defines a mass shooting? Is it, you know, one person shot and killed, but eight others were present. Um, and each of those eight people goes into that 600 number. <laughs> it's like, uh, times everyone who was there that they all experienced mass shootings. So therefore there were eight mass shootings, right <laughs> in the same spot. And it's like, well, now you're, now you're just kind of, kind of fudging the numbers. So, um, but I want to, I want to kick this back to Andrew cause he's our guest and not Mike and I, um, <laughs> so you're, you're on this track and you're doing this research and you're working with people, um, uh, we mentioned a couple of folks at the at the outset of the show, um, Megan Rainey and um, and Emmy Betts, and mm -hmm. I want to hear what you're doing with these people. First of all, who they are; those two happen to be um, doctors. Um, but um, I want to hear what you're you're doing with them and the organizations. I definitely want to hear about Affirm and uh, and all the work that's going on. So tell, give us some context as to the why to the what, not just oh we want data so we can inform policy decisions, but like mm -hmm. what's the purpose here. Okay, I'm going to go a little circuitous route here so I Please can mention some, some of the people along the way. So I needed, to, I, needed, I needed to match up my experience with my education and then find data. So I figured, who has data? Let's go to the sources. So uh, National Shooting Sports Foundation, Bill Broussard there, runs their child safety uh, suicide program. Along Love with, NSSF. Yeah, yeah. Right, so they have great data, good stuff, pers personable, easy to talk to, very responsive. So, so I'm talking to them, and um, 
it was Bill who who linked me up with Emmy, and I know of her through through all the research that I've been doing. She's she's hosting a whole bunch of research, does all sorts of cool programs and everything like that uh, that has to do with firearms, firearm safety. Uh, she's an ER doc in Colorado. Uh, mm-hmm. Not, not where you are. You are not in Colorado. <laughs> right. Non-Colorado. Yes. Totally different shape altogether. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. Same mountains and snow. But yeah. So talked to Emmy. She introduced me to the crew over at Affirm Research. And uh, you know, dealing in this topic brings me from far left to far right. And, and everybody in between. And so, so I really didn't know what I was getting into, but, but I started talking to the Affirm people, doing my little Google stalking of them, and they're an apolitical research group. So they don't care about right and left. They care about what's happening now. And they're, they're doctors for the most part. There's a couple of MPHs there. Um, almost everybody's an expert in, in their field, and it's, and it's really interesting to have public and private conversations with them because they're ER docs talking about the how shootings have affected them. We don't how often do you think about an ER doctor? Never. Ever, really. Right. You know. Right. And they are deeply affected by the trauma that they're seeing. And then so they put together this organization to research it further and it I guess, depending on how you look at it, it could have a little bit of a left slant, but it doesn't. It really doesn't. I've, I mean, I've been there for interfacing with them for six or seven months now, and it's really data-based. Like, they, they want to have hard numbers on everything before they say a word. And Andrew, so, Andrew, not to cut you off, but I'm yep. so glad you just said that because I run in those same circles. Right. And I went into it just kind of being like, I'm going to be an observer. I'm not going to get in any political pissing matches. And even my work with the prevents uh, task force in DC, uh, I, I was pleasantly surprised at how many people kept the neutral rational head mm-hmm. on their shoulders when it came to these things, even if privately they may have, they may hate a certain public figure that's on a part of a team or whatever, um, but I'm glad you said it just because I feel like sometimes I say it and it just, you know, it's just me out there saying it. Uh, you'd be surprised that there are a lot of these people. Um, and I know we had a bad history, especially with uh, ER doctors with the NRA telling them to stay in their lane, which I think was the dumbest thing that we could have done as far it as was, the yes. is concerned. Yep. Right. They, and, well, and to that point, too, I think when when you just go, hey, hey, look at the data. Um, there's a couple of factors, and especially these days. So we're recording this in early 2021. 20, and um, when you say look at the data, it inflames a lot of limbic response and defensiveness from people who are really married to their ideologies. So if you need data to say what you what you want them to say to push an agenda and they don't happen to make sense, you're going to get angry at that regardless of what side you tilt to. So saying, hey, just look at the figures can inflame a right-leaning conservative who is a you know strident gun owner because he or she doesn't want to see something that conflicts with ideology and belief, and the same goes for the left. Um, that's why I made that point earlier about like you know what if the numbers come out that uh, f- firearms aren't that dangerous except for suicides? Well, then it, you know it doesn't give any fuel to the people who need them to mean something, right? Um, unfortunately, and I'm curious, you, you can circle back at to this if you want, Andrew, with after your circuitous um, <laughs> route. But um, throughout 2020, we had, we had people who represented pillars of our society, science, medicine, law, data analysis, economics, politicizing what used to be neutral information. And I think it's eroded our confidence. So now when somebody says, just listen to the fill in the blank, you know, that used to be neutral, um, it's almost like we're waiting to be, you know, the hand is extended, but we're waiting to be punched with the fist behind him. 
And mm-hmm. you know, it's like, just, just look at the data, just look at the law, just look at the facts. And it, it's like, well, you, your facts or they were filtered or, you know, they, they were politicized. So I, I get why people are suspicious of that, not just because it, it could threaten their belief system, but also because we, we don't know who to trust anymore. It's really, it sucks. It sucks. Yeah. There's, you know what, there's a ton of good data out there. Sometimes it's hard to make decisions, rational decisions, if you don't understand what all the numbers are. It is overwhelming. And I, <clears throat> I, I am not the sharpest spoon in the drawer. And, <laughs> <laughs> and Love sharp uh, I have to sit there for hours looking over numbers just to try and figure things out and, and putting them into spreadsheets. And, you know, I have to double and triple check everybody's work to make sure that it's right. Is it right? Um, in fact, I took apart Chicago's crimes for 2020, all 440 plus thousand of them and kind of put together all the gun crimes. And surprisingly, tens of thousands of them were, were over in of the violations were over just the FOID card. So it was more of a bureaucratic issue that you didn't have a registered gun or it lapsed as opposed to like a genuine crime, like a shooting, a homicide, an injury. Um, and all those get considered gun crimes. Is that it? Yes. Ah, yeah. There you go. So, so here I am throwing away a large majority of the firearms crimes and then, then looking at things like I think there was either six or eight full auto violations. Like it's, it's statistically not there, you know, same with suppressors. There really weren't any. Um, so, so it was interesting to run from, from one giant Metro that's known for heavy firearms crime and having to throw away a lot of the data because it wasn't, um, what I would consider a violent crime. It certainly was a chargeable crime and they did charge for it, but it wasn't what it might appear to the average viewer. We, we might call that a victimless crime. Yes. Yeah. You're totally bureaucratic. Hmm. Interesting. That's interesting that we do that with our, with our firearms data, but we don't do it with say vehicular data. It's like, right. uh, ve- vehicular crimes. It's like, you know, how many lapsed registrations were there or failure to ensure mm-hmm. renew your yeah. driver's license. <laughs> <laughs> so Andrew, I got a question for you. What, you. You were police officer the majority of your life. Yes. Like you were in law enforcement for a very long time. Um, where, where was that? Where did you do I that? Was, I was in Vermont. Okay. And what made you get into law enforcement? I wanted to make a change. So, yeah, that's good. That's why, that's why I do what I do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You get it. Yeah, I totally do. No, that's, that's good. So was that satisfying for you? Cause I know a lot of people who get in and they go, you know, no, nah, this isn't for me or halfway through the Academy, they realize they can't you know, do anything more than arrest and move on to the next crime, whatever their computer tells them to go to. And there's no follow up. There's no real satisfaction. Some people really get a good satisfaction out of that. Like, was it, was it fulfilling? Did you, did you make yeah. a difference? Yes and no. So yes, it was satisfying and no. And it, I mean, it's a cop job. You're, you're there doing stuff that with people in the worst situations of their lives that sometimes it's by their choice or by other people's choice. And you have to respond to that, be neutral and do what you need to do to assist them in every way possible. So sometimes that, that involves helping people, getting social services. Sometimes it involves arresting people or arresting a family member. Um, Sometimes standing over a dead body for whatever reason it happens to be dead. And, you know, and then every ambulance call, every fire call, anything that, you know, all those loose dogs and everything like that. So, yeah, it, it, it absolutely for me was the greatest job ever to make positive changes for my community as well as for, for the people in the community, the citizens there. So what land you in North North Carolina? I wanted to escape the weather in the Northeast. Not a, not a big skier or what? Yeah, it was. I don't know. Six months of winter was getting old and tiring. I was shoveling all the time, you know. 
the, the maple syrup isn't enough to keep you in Vermont, I suppose. Not, a, not, not they can ship it out every day. <laughs> so uh, let's stay with the, the police theme for a little bit. You uh, remember sure. uh, something somewhere in an email exchange? I think you alluded to being an instructor, like use of force instructor. T- tell the tell the people listening what that means. What's a use of sure. force instructor? Sure, use of force is anything from your presence up to touching somebody, using force, arresting them, handcuffs, hand, you know, what we consider, I'm doing air quotes here, hand-to-hand combat, you know, those sort of things. Uh, The use of batons, expandable, straight, uh, the PR-24, all the various pepper sprays or maces, you know, any of the aerosols, and then uh, up to including firearms. And what did you... What do you, I'm trying to think how to phrase this. These days, when the police seem to be in a no-win situation more than they probably ever have been, I'm not going to say that they're under attack necessarily, but um, but you can't you can't avoid avoid that when you got defund the police calls. Um, mm-hmm. Talking about using force to handle a situation. Uh, it can't help but beget um, a question as to how do you teach people when to level up? And my my understanding, my history of it, you know, work in security and whatnot, is you only go to the next level up that mm-hmm. is required to de- you know defuse the situation or de-escalate. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, if the guy comes at you with a bat, you go to the taser. If he comes at you with a taser, you go to the gun. And, you know, so you only go up one level up. And if and if verbal right. commands can get it done, you stick with verbal commands. What do you do? You think that that reform needs to happen in the area of use of force slash um, de escalation techniques that are verbal you know, non-weaponized or, or are we okay? And this is just being, again, going back to the statistics, statistically insignificant outliers being blown up through media to make it look like more of a problem than it is. Oh boy, there, I could go on for days about this. this I'm sure it's a big question. I know I, I realize. That. So, okay. I'm, I'm very critical of use of force training programs. And I, I considered my instruction lacking to begin with. And then I went back for more and more and more. Um, I put myself through all the various schools over the years to learn more about it. Uh, LFI, Randy Kane went to Gunsight a few years ago, you know, so obviously I want to become an expert on this and because there's so much to learn. And then I became instructor in everything in order to learn even more and then use my experience to help the little young Jedi out there on the street use it properly and then document uses mm-hmm. of force correctly. So, so I was critical of my lack of time spent on it at the academy and then post-academy. And with that, I follow up. I... I interface with a lot of other trainers that are in in the industry, firearms training industry, use of force industry, as well as at academies. And everybody has increased their hours for de-escalation, for, for any of the hands-on stuff, and then the firearms. And then <clears throat> and then like taser and everything like that. So um the training hours have only increased. The criteria has increased. There's there's really good stuff going on out there. It's absolutely amazing how they've taken the criticism and then built on it. And then we have something like George Floyd happen, and it's like, you know, I'm watching it just like everybody else in horror, you know, like what's going on here? You know, this can't happen. Like this doesn't happen. And it did. So I, that was not just a superfluous question done out of my own, um, you know, desire. Uh, I wanted to link it back because I I've been teaching our law enforcement, our local law enforcement academies, uh, crisis intervention training week for three years plus now, and I do the the mental health introduction, like what is mental health? Here's the overview. I teach emotional functioning, yield theory, 
Um, and at the end, we do scenarios and evaluations. And what we do is we throw a bunch of mental health stuff all week long, 40 hours at the recruits. Mm-hmm. And um, there is not a significant overlap with what you just described. Uh, that is that is viewed as separate and apart. And what we've learned over the last eight academies, three years, whatever it's been, is teach it at the beginning, they forget it by the end because the academy is like 26 weeks long or something. Um, teach it at the end, they're already too cop to receive it. And they still talk mm-hmm. to subjects struggling with mental illness like they're just uh, the same threat on the street. And it's our frustration. And I guess in, in my perfect world, what I'd like to do is is integrate, you know, somebody like me going alongside whispering in the ear of the the recruit as they're engaging in the the defensive tactics, the the, mm-hmm. the use of force stuff, um, while also keeping in mind you're dealing with a human being, right? Who's who's in a is in a bad way, and that, and that's really what it is. You want to keep your officer safety awareness around you, all that stuff. But um, but do you, have you seen anything that integrates the two? I'm, I'm like, is anybody doing it really super well that we point out and go, they that department and Reno actually does very very well. We, I'm blessed to live in Truckee Meadows where our officers very good at their jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, we almost have no incidents of violence. Um, but are you seeing anything where you can point to and be like, that's the model. It almost needs no improvement. Um, you know, and, and are they doing this like mental health, uh, mental illness, de-escalation, defensive tactics thing integrated well? I don't know who's doing that the best. Um, <clears throat> I'll, I'll say that I follow Vermont because that's why I went to the academy sure. and, you know, I know everybody and, and I know that they're making, have made huge strides since the old days and are constantly evaluating the program and making changes that work. So not, don't go out. I'm not telling everybody to go bother the, <laughs> the police academy. There's only a few people there, but, but they're doing a good job and they address that because it is a, it is a small state with a smaller population hmm. with with no budget, high taxes, and cops spread out over very rural areas that, that oftentimes don't have backup. So you have to be able to respond to everything and hmm. anything as a sole officer for the most part, other than in larger metropolises. What's, uh, what's your take on the so-called militarization of the police? I guess I don't see it. Um, not not the way it's being portrayed in the media. There's no, there's none of that jackbooted thug stuff going on. Just because they put on fatigues and have have riot gear, well, we've always had riot gear. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it's just changed. So have the uniforms, but it's not. There's no. I don't know, battalions of people knocking down doors or patrolling or anything like that. And like, okay, I'll share. Since I follow police work, I uh, I tend to go to Paris at least once a year. They have patrols of police officers and soldiers walking around the various areas. Really? That would be military tactics. Yeah. Really? Yep. And the area is safe. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Is that that all of Europe or is it just that one country? No, it's Paris. Oh, oh! Specifically in that city. Yeah, specifically in that city. What? So, so there, I, so there actually are. You'll see three, four, five soldiers with heavy, really thick PCs on and everything like that, and uh, doing their thing. And then you'll see two and three officers at a time doing their thing, walking around. So, are <clears throat> are they more militaristic? Yeah, but it's not like they're. They're not kicking down doors. They're just on patrol, stopping cars, stopping anybody that looks, you know, at all suspicious, you know, identifying things. So they, Hmm. the, so the police are doing their job and then the soldiers are doing police jobs, but patrolling around like soldiers. Fascinating. Yeah. I'm I'm thinking of turn in terms of like, we had a local rural sheriff's office. Nevada is very rural also outside of our urban centers of Vegas and Reno, which are at opposite ends of the state. Um, the other 88,000 square miles outside of those two counties are very rural. 
And one of our rural sheriff's departments uh, some years ago got an MRAP hand me down from from the mm-hmm. from the military from some some organization and, and they're just driving it through the streets of this rural town <laughs> like what are you doing with them? what kind of what kind of riots are you putting down in your 1500 person community like does, i don't i don't get this uh so maybe i think i think people see that wheels, wheels or something like yeah, that get yeah maybe yeah <laughs> um yeah. mike yeah Andrew, I was going to say, I, I know in one of the, you know, reading your bio and, and everything, and one of the things you touched on was um, how you've witnessed a lot of suicide just through your law enforcement work. Yep. Um, and then you had, you had mentioned about a few instances of suicide by cop. People have tried, yes. And I mean, it's, that's something that I think is so difficult. Suicide in any community is difficult anyways, because a trauma bomb is going off. Right. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, just as a, a law enforcement officer that cares about the community and showing up to that call is always tough because you have to learn how to deal with speaking to the family and they're, they're just mm-hmm. shock and probably just the ultimate crisis. Um, but suicide by cop, <laughs> That's such a tough, that's a tough one. It's one of the reasons why I do feel bad for police officers sometimes um, because, you know, you're scrutinized a lot on how you behave. And Mm -hmm. there are some people that, that I'm sure want to go out that way. It's got to be the toughest thing to do. Were you ever involved in an actual moment of that where you, you were able to either get out of it or. <laughs> yes, I have. I've, I have had people approach me wanting to be killed. Wow. And there's, there's nothing more dissatisfying to them to put my gun away because it's not going to happen. And, you know, <clears throat> obviously the criteria weren't being met, you know, the whole, the little triangle there, ability, opportunity and jeopardy or, uh, <clears throat> or whatever acronym you, you need for your jurisdiction, it, you know, all the criteria weren't there. So there wasn't anything that I could do other than go to using defensive tactics and, you know, obviously bringing them to the hospital where they need help because there's, there's obviously a whole lot more going on there if they're in that position. Did you ever develop a relationship with any of them? Like where you stayed maybe in touch or you saw each other in the future that you can remember? Um, I mean, small communities, like when, that's what I was thinking. Um, yeah, I guess I ran into them, but never, no, there tends to be that, you know, that thin blue line between interacting with people other than, you know, you might run into them into the grocery store, somebody that was really having a hard time and it's just, Hey, how are you? You know, it's not, it's not like you're going to go maybe have coffee with them unless you wind up having coffee with them, you know, at the local diner or coffee shop. So, yeah, I could see that being almost, I want to say intimate, but like that's an experience, yeah. right. To go through somebody that wants to end their life, but they want to make you mm-hmm. do it. So mm-hmm. you're mentally probably there's an anger piece. Cause that would make me angry if someone was trying to force me to do something awful to them mm-hmm. because of their crisis. But at the same time, I'm a compassionate person. You know, I do, I do understand people in crisis. I, I, you know, it's, that's just a tough one. <laughs> yeah. I, I think the burden of being a police officer too is it's pretty intimate when you put handcuffs on somebody and take away the freedom, you know, and mm-hmm. then you see them again at the grocery store and, and our profession struggles with that too. We, we just, we have a lot of nonsensical uh, rigid rules about not interacting with our patients, you know, out in the public ever. Uh, and that's, dumb uh it's just dumb because it dehumanizes it stigmatizes it says don't come get help because then i'm gonna i'm gonna treat you like a weirdo later um and i think i think police struggle with the same thing you know you you send somebody to jail for for breaking the law and then you run into them with your family at the local fair um Mm -hmm. it can get pretty tense um and i think what our society has really done in the last and i want to get to to your impression on what isolation has done during covid from a public health perspective perspective too but over the last like year year and a half or really you know even four years of the last administration we've we've become so hyperbolically um separated that we've forgotten that everybody's a human being walking the earth and and i think that's 
it's really sad. And I think it's really detrimental to our ability to communicate and help each other and be compassionate and love each other through, through difficult times. It's like when we start slapping labels on each other, uh, and those labels are negative, um, it, it only drives us further apart. So, you know, circling back around to the, the COVID stuff and isolation, I know you mentioned that in, in your, um, in your email, what are you, what are you seeing in terms of the isolative effects as it relates to, you know, mental illness, um, social interaction, whatever else is popping on the radar, certainly education, um, children interacting through sports. Um, what, what are you seeing? Oh, <clears throat> I'll just go personal observations as opposed to professional because I might, I might not be able to comment professionally. Um, so, so isolation stuff has been big. Um, people are starting to measure it now. There's some really good studies going on. Really? Uh, what, yeah. What's if that? You, uh, we're doing one through our university for students just to see where, where people are at because there's a, there's a bit of anxiety that goes along with this. Uh, there's, there's a whole lot of social media use, how that's impacting people. Uh, is it distracting people from the work that they need to do? Um, so, yes. so we're monitoring that. You, you can probably see some more stuff on PubMed too. Okay. Uh, Google anxiety studies, COVID, you'll, you'll probably find quite a few. Okay. Um, so with that, I'm having to deal with my people in my cohort at the school, as well as other professionals. Um, I've been reading up on it. Do you know Dr. Kimberly Brownlee from the UK? Uh, is that L E E? Yes. I have seen that. I don't know why. Maybe she, maybe it's been she's done some excellent work on this on isolation, but more dealing with like say prisoners, people in mental health units okay. and has spent far too much time on this topic. And then really she orates it. Well, there's a bunch of YouTube videos that are worth listening to, but, but you really have to read her work. And it makes sense, okay. and it it'll it'll enlighten everybody what's going on. Um, just use the isolation, not the medium that she's talking about. You know, and the the concept is the same, irrespective yeah. of the environment, is what you're saying. Yep, and it was done like a decade ago. You know, from a decade ago to present has nothing to do with COVID, but it has everything to do with what we're dealing with. Okay, right on. Yeah, that's that's good, and I love that you didn't give it away. We have to go look it up on our own. <laughs> it, it's worth it. Yeah. You know, it, you'll spend a couple of hours reading, and and it it'll enlighten you to what's going on out there professionally, and so, it'll help your listeners too. So sometimes, you know, learning about that stuff doesn't help because, as one uh, colleague said years ago to me, sometimes insight is the booby prize because it doesn't tell you what to do to fix it. Do we have mm -hmm. any antidotes, like just some thumbnail sketch of like what you can do to uh, diminish the impacts of this stuff? Exactly what they'll tell you to do for everything else. Go for a walk, exercise, right. eat right. Okay. Um, diet. Yeah. Do anything. Have good social groups or something like that. Even if it's via zoom or the phone, you know, get out there, uh, chit chat with people. I'm a horrible violator of that one because I just sit in my office and type all day long. But yeah, I do my social stuff in bursts. I'll just, I'll be on the phone all day or something like that. So. You're, you're in a tough spot because you're in school typing and you're also part of your work is, is your internship as well. So it's like, you can never really get away. And then once your once your passion becomes your life, if that involves sitting behind a computer screen for great periods of time, it's almost like you don't even realize it until you look up one day and come up for air and you're like, Oh, it was dark when I got to work and it's dark when I'm leaving work. <laughs> I never set foot outside all day and I didn't even notice. <laughs> yeah. That's, it could be tough. So yeah, I'm doing projects on isolation by isolating myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> taking, taking metrics before and after. Did you, right. um, uh, I just was on a call a week ago and a gal from our state agents, our state suicide prevention agency, uh, Misty, um, she was, um, she was talking about how preliminary numbers for 2020 are in and suicide is down. 
Um, but I don't know if you've seen any of that. To get, and I don't even know where she got it. I haven't followed up with her. But especially given what you lamented earlier about not having databases talking to each other, are, are you hearing any whispers of that, that suicide broadly across the country is down for 2020? I don't know about that, but I know interpersonal violence is up. Mm-hmm. So, so those things that you might have gone to the police for or something like that, like domestic assaults, uh, interpersonal violence, whatever you want to call it, whatever the trendy term is now, uh, spousal abuse is very high. Um, and oftentimes this is going on after the fact. So, right. um, so it might be happening now, but reported later. Um, yeah. I, I'm yeah, I'd con- love to see those numbers. I, I and to uh, piggybacking off that, I'm concerned about um, child abuse too, child neglect, mm-hmm. because our I can only use Nevada stats, um, but 75 ish percent of our mandated reporters are educators. So when the kids were out of school from March through June here, um, we we lost 75 percent of our mandated reporters, and mm-hmm. um, correlation not necessarily being causation. Uh, the amount of child abuse reports went down by 45 or 46%. So one can reasonably assume that child abuse did not drop by half. Uh, it just wasn't getting reported. And yeah. that is startling. Now, kids have sort of quasi gone back to school sometimes in various jurisdictions, you know, in the past six months or so. Um, but that's another thing that concerns me because if, if domestic violence is going up, um, because people are forced to be together, um, how many of those households have children who are being mm-hmm. exposed to it at bare minimum and at maximum, how many of those children are being, you know, getting that violence offloaded onto them. And then, um, of course, undergirding all this is the, who's not catching it. So it's right. all very spooky to me. Um, I want to do. I want to be mindful of time here too, because we're you know coming up on an hour or so. And I wanted to ask. You mentioned earlier on, like you know, you left law enforcement because you, you wanted to you know contribute and go um, you know do do something different. I wanted to ask, what do you want to be when you grow up? Uh, <laughs> you're 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 on this track now for the MPH, and you're working with a firm, yeah. and you want to do all these things. What, what do you envision? What's your dream? I don't know. Um, I'm. I obviously like to chit chat with people and talk about things. More podcasts. Uh, I like more. Um, I, I absolutely love research doing the qualitative side of things, uh, quantitative too. Um, I can, I can type fairly well. So, you know, eyeballing things like policy, backing up people's BS as far as like what they want to do, what they don't want to do. Um, I don't think I want to go back into law enforcement in any capacity, you know, other than maybe consulting or something like that, seeing if things are effective or, you know, evaluating programs. Um, I was actually looking at some PhD programs just because I'm a sucker for punishment. (laughs) Sucker for uh, student loan debt. Is that what I just heard? Oh, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Luckily a lot of PhD programs now are fully funded. So that's, uh, that's interesting. I did not know Uh, that. Yeah. So, so with that, eyeballing that, but I need to do some good work in this space. And that's where, you know, that's where I'm out. That's why, that's why I'm networking, trying to get some FaceTime with a ton of people on, on all sides of the coin here. So like I chit chat with gun owners, enemies, and I chit chat with, with lefties enemies. So there's, you know, both sides of the coin there and more like, you know, I'm dealing with, with people who are making policy and lobbyists and things like that. And then, you know, normal folks, normal gun owners, normal, um, anti-gunners seeing what's going on there. You know, how are they thinking? Why are they thinking this, you know, and, you know, on both sides of the issue. So I don't know where I'm going to, where I'm going to find myself, but, you know, I'm obviously looking for that niche place here that, that melds all of it together. Yeah, so are we. <laughs> yeah, you know, Andrew, I have a question for you. Um, sure. Part of the, you know, part of your your bio actually has your your affiliation to the firearms industry through holster making. Yeah, I was a holster maker forever, um, and outdoor stuff. You know, anything that had to be made, I did it. Uh, I sold that business a few years ago. I'm still into rifle slings. I make tons of those, um, 
and those are all over the place. And I pretty much stopped doing a lot of the firearms training years ago. Uh, I blew my shoulder out, so so my right side doesn't work. So it's not like I can do good demos or hand to hand or anything like that, or you know any of the defensive tactics. So, did you attend a lot of the gun show like events, like the different shows as the NRA show and oh, NRA shot? Uh, shot okay. Did training, did training with Rob ages ago, thousands of years ago when we both were young and, and not gray. And, uh, <laughs> Rob, he probably had a little hair back then. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like he's like, uh, in, uh, in back of the future, Strickland, it's like Marty goes, Jesus, didn't that guy ever have hair? <laughs> <laughs> no. So, okay. So we ran in the same circles most likely. Cause I've been, Oh yeah. Yeah. We probably time. met guaranteed. Do you still do leather work? I do. I mean, outside of the slings, do you do personal stuff or? Oh God, no, no, no. It's all I'm a one trick pony. I know how to make rifle slings. That's it. I just like, I feed leather into machines and then poke holes in it. And that sounds it. like, that sounds like me and uh, all my life. I could draw Bart Simpson. Like I could draw Bart Simpson yeah. perfectly. And people thought I was an artist because I could draw. Bart. <laughs> I had one go-to drawing that I could right. do. And I could do anything. I can make him look like a cholo. I can make him, yeah. look, you know what I mean? I can put him in a cop outfit. I yeah. can do anything. <laughs> but that's it. Yeah. That's great. You're like, oh, hell. So it was like, I can't. I traced really well. You know, the, yeah. the onion skin paper, you lay it over something, you trace. I was really good I at that. I didn't think I could do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> your, your time to ask your question, Michael. Yeah, we always ask this of uh, all, all of our guests. It's just something I'm fascinated with because there's always a different answer. But, Andrew, how do you tend to your, your mental health? Uh, I like to run, but I don't do it often enough. So, wait. Um, I'm, I'm an introspective loner. So, so, I like to think about things. And that might be counterproductive, but I play chess in my head about everything. You know, there's no, I pre-plan everything in my head and that really works well for me. So I can, I have an idea what I'm doing at all times. It's my only way to apply control to things that I have absolutely no control over, which is obviously during a pandemic, during, during graduate school, during, you know, like Christmas rush here at the shop and you know, that sort of stuff. It, I, I have to apply my version of control to the situation. That's cool. And I really appreciate you bringing that up because I think a lot of people who don't attribute it and frame it the way that you did would just chalk it up to quote unquote overthinking. And they interpret that as a bad thing. And I always help them to see it as a good thing. I think it's an asset to be able to see many angles of different things, even if it sometimes results in paralysis and inability to make a decision. I, th- I think that can be well used. And so I, re- I really appreciate that you said that, um, that you, you use it as to your advantage, right. To, to try to gain control over things that mm-hmm. traditionally you don't have any control over. I think it's really useful, especially in a time like this when there's so much going on that we can't control. Nice. Nice. I like that. Yeah. You have to accept what's there. It's not, you know, I have no choice. There's no reason to fight it. So right. Well, there's a there's a little bit of practice in that too. Um, I remember, you know, the, the we we train the, you can't train the cops for every situation, right? So what do you do? You you say do mental practice. If you're standing mm-hmm. in a store and something goes down over your right shoulder, what do you do? You know, like you're always kind of like surveying and but you, but you don't let it turn into anxiety. You don't let it turn mm-hmm. into full blown like crippling. Um, overthinking. So that's, it's, it's good. That's a really good practice. It does help you get control. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much for coming on. Um, I know Mike does. I'm looking forward to seeing how our uh, circles overlap in the future because the work that you're doing with a firm and the work that we're doing, um, I think is just naturally going to dovetail into something really, really special down the road. And although we all want to make needle moving improvements. I, I think that we don't know necessarily what it's going to look like and being open to whatever comes is really critical. Um, Cause I think sometimes if you lock in too, too firmly on 
what you want it to be, you end up missing great opportunities that could be something even bigger. So um, thank you very much for coming absolutely. on. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You've been a, it's been awesome. Um, we, probably a lot to uncover there or keep unpacking, but um, yeah. we'll, have to get, we'll have to have you back on, especially with, uh, you know, when you make advancements in the work that you're doing. It seems like Thank we're you. doing we're doing these intro shows with everybody, and then it's almost like it's almost inevitable that they're going to circle back and we're going to go deeper into their passions and their and their areas of expertise. Oh, yeah. That'll be great. Yeah, that'd be cool. And we could bore everybody to death with uh, alpha values and you know uh, statistical metrics. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> you see his eyes light up. If you're not watching this on YouTube, it's <laughs> his eyes got about the size of pipe plates. I'm such a dork. I tell you, <laughs> that's okay. Geeks of a feather flock together. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All well, right. let's thank our sponsor before we uh, sign off here. Thank our guests. Thank you, Andrew. Thank we you, guys. Appreciate it. Yes, at any time. Um, I'm I'm really glad we got a chance to this opportunity, and uh, we'd also like to thank Arms Corps. Arms Corps, the maker of one of the best 1911s on the market. I would almost say the best for the price, and also their ammo company is amazing. Uh, I've been in this industry for a long time. Every time that I would do shoots, anything like that, um, I always hit up my friends at Arms Corps for ammo um, because it was reliable. That was the most important thing for me. Uh, it always worked. Um, but I'd like to. We always like to thank Arms Corps for their support of Walk the Talk America and this show in particular. And then I'm going to kick it over to you, Jake. Who else would you like to thank? Uh, I don't know. Probably nobody. Except for well, <laughs> yeah, I know I'm, I'm being cheeky. Now, my, my company that I co-own uh, with my co-owner Lindsay Bell here in Northern Nevada, uh, we do outpatient counseling, and you can follow us on all the usual channels. Um, uh, we we try to produce uh, Instagram and YouTube stuff and Facebook stuff, uh, just just free stuff to get it out there. And of course, Noggin Notes, the podcast that I've uh, hosted for weekly for about three and a half years now, uh, mental health podcast, check out noggin notes, uh, learn stuff. We just, we just want to, you know, help people heal. So, um, Andrew, how do people get a hold of you if they want to reach out? Uh, stalk me. Uh, <laughs> Andrew Langlois with a silent Andrew, L. Uh, I'm on Facebook, LinkedIn, all the usual spots. So all the, all the social media stuff, easy to find. All right. Uh, well, that does it for us, and thanks to Mike for introducing me to Arms Corps. Because of that, I own several boxes of 22LR that does shoot quite well. And we thank you, the listening audience, for continuing to make this successful. Please share it around. All this stuff doesn't do any good locked up inside our heads. Uh, if we want to help keep improving folks, we need to share what we have, not just hoard it to ourselves. So, on behalf of the Walk the Talk American family, the Noggin Notes family, the Zephyr Wellness family, we wish you all great mental wellness. Thank you.